Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and in this very special episode, which is being made to celebrate World Social Work Day, I have the pleasure of being joined by Lem Cisse. Lem is an award-winning international writer and broadcaster. He's a poet, a playwright, and the Chancellor of the University of Manchester. Lem, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you feeling? Andy, I'm feeling good. Uh, I don't know if you could hear that... uh... You got a siren. The you got siren, a siren in, in the background. Yeah, that's just yes. to that's just to herald my arrival. Good. Well, that's lovely. <laughs> lovely. Uh, Lem, where are you at the moment? Um, I'm in Hackney. I'm in uh, in London. Um, tomorrow, I should be in Manchester to um, celebrate the end of the chancellorship of Salford University for the Chancellor uh, Jackie Kay who was herself adopted. Okay. I'm Chancellor at the University of Manchester, which is right next to Salford, and I was brought up in care. Jackie was also in care. So social workers have been kind of central to both of our lives. Absolutely. And you're so you're down south today? You're not always in Manchester? No, I'm not. No, right? yeah, yeah. I spent half my life in Manchester, half my life in London, and um, I kind of, I kind of like it like that. Manchester um, is not Salford, and Salford is not Manchester. That's right, isn't that's, it? That's uh, absolutely... Uh, the case, yeah, yeah, yeah. The two, the two are sat next to each other. Um, John Cooper Clark, the poet, is from the Bard Salford. of Salford. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Whereas I, uh, I'm actually from Lancashire, uh, so I'm not. E- I'm not even. You know, I wasn't brought up in Manchester. I was brought up in in the villages of Lancashire that sort of are like a necklace around around. Uh, Manchester as the head yes. of the Northwest. Is it sort of rugby league land? Would that be right? Uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yes, it is uh, rugby league land uh, as opposed to rugby union. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. listen. Let's uh, let's talk a bit about your your upbringing and your background. I know Lem. A lot of listeners will know a lot about you. Others may not be aware that you grew up in care. Um, could you start us off by telling me a little bit about your experience? Yeah. Well, um, I guess social work and the social services and the government have been central to my life from the moment that my mother was put into a mother and baby home in the northwest of England. She came here to study um, in the late 60s from Ethiopia and had no intention of staying uh, and and didn't. Um, but she found herself pregnant, and and that is where the sort of machine of the state kind of locked into her life uh, while she was at her most vulnerable. I've got to say, you know, all of our stories, regardless of whether social work is involved in our stories, are connected via the circumstances of our conception. And, 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 and actually the circumstances of conception are not what parents talk to their children about. 
it's, it's, it tends to be a rather awkward conversation if it is talked about, isn't it? If it's ever talked about, yeah. But the truth of me and you being here, Andy, is that there were circumstances of conception that happened. And had those circumstances of conception not happened, we wouldn't be having this discussion now. So those circumstances are central to us being here. The reason I'm saying that is that we have a blind spot, I think, um, in society in general, and it is about the circumstances of conception. Your your mother and father won't tell you that that you were born because they were drunk. Sure. You know, your your mother and father won't tell you that you were born because they were on holiday and they weren't married and, you know, and then you were there and they had to get married quickly. You don't know that story. You, you, your, your mother and your father won't tell you that their mother and father didn't want them to be together at all and didn't want you to be part of the, 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 the new story of their lives. So what, what we have is a story like mine, which begins with me coming into care, but it never did. That was not the story of me. That was not actually the story of why I ended up in care. That happened before I was born, at least in the last nine months before I was born. And it had nothing to do with me. It it had everything to do with the state and the two people who were involved in my conception. And the, the clean narrative is this. I came into care and then stuff happened. But that is actually not the truth of anybody's story. The truth of anybody's stories is is with the people who came before I was I was uh, I was born, and this is uh, this this is fascinating because the state decides the condition of conception. Let me just explain that: if the woman can't tell the people around her, who the father is, or if the woman's conceived outside of, for example, marriage as a, as a, as a, as a, as a institution, which is acceptable to state and church. Um, if, if she can't justify the means of conception or the, 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 the the act of conception to the institutions around her, she's a problem. And your mum found herself in that situation where she was a problem. She was deemed. She was deemed. She is she was a, deemed problem a problem to to church and state. Okay, so 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 you have a woman who's travelled to this country, finds herself pregnant. Like I would say, probably fifty percent of, of of people who are pregnant find themselves pregnant rather than. Uh, were you know, deliberately conceived as, you know, for, for, for pregnancy. I don't know what the percentages are. And because of that, and because she didn't have her family around her, the school that she was in got together with the church, that got together with the state, that found a mother and baby home, uh, which was run by Liverpool Board of Moral Welfare. Uh 
And that home was filled with Irish women. Okay, so 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 my mother's story kind of uh, kind of came here by virtue of her being pregnant in this country. She was not 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 exclusively Irish women, but mainly Irish women, or with a large percentage of Irish women. She finds herself in this system where women who are British who are pregnant without a husband are inside this system which gets them to sign the adoption papers while they're at their most vulnerable in a house which is run by nuns, but which is connected to the social services who get these women to sign the adoption papers while they're at their most vulnerable. The nuns make these women feel guilty for what it is that they've done make them sweep the floors, uh, clean the place because they have to pay for their keep. Uh, I mean, the mother and baby homes, that's a, a travesty of injustice in Ireland. It's maybe something which hasn't, isn't known about quite as much in, in GB, but it's something where I'm from. Like my grandmother, my dad's mum, was given up for adoption in Limerick and then uh, was adopted to a family in Belfast. That's, you know, hundreds of miles away. I did a radio, sorry, television programme in... Um, Belfast and uh, it wasn't the Sunday show I um, know it was the Sunday show actually it was going out from Belfast was this with William Crawley no the woman who because this was this was national U- United Kingdom so the, the the woman who presented it now does this morning um oh gosh I know her Su- Suzanne Suzanne anyway ah uh, she did the thing with the uh, with Piers, Piers, Susanna, Susanna Reid. Thank you, Susanna Reid. Yeah. So she did the Sunday show from uh, Belfast, from the studios there. And um, and it was on adoption, 1960s in particular. Um, the taxi driver that took me there was adopted. Mm-hmm. The taxi driver who brought me back was adopted. Yeah. Both of them told me different stories. One of them story was my mum lived around the corner, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in the 1960s, they it was, I think it was very big in, in Ireland in particular. But 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 let me just be clear about this. The Irish community and government have uh borne witness to the travesty of the mother and baby homes and to what's happened to those women, et cetera. Um, and is admitting to it, et cetera. Um, exact same thing was happening all around uh, the country. And in fact, all around the world. So we start to think about the children's homes. We start to think about the children's homes in all over West Africa, established by the, um, the church uh, and state. And so this is not something that's just happening in Ireland and it definitely, and that's the North of Ireland or the Republic, but this is also something that was happening in the United Kingdom in, in, sorry, in um, England. And uh, my mother landed in the middle of that shit storm. Uh, Lem, you weren't, am I right that you weren't, your mum didn't give you up for adoption? So my mother is, um, is uh, given a social worker 
who works with the mother and baby home and primarily, sorry, his primary purpose is to get her to sign the adoption papers. Uh, and she refused to sign the adoption papers. She didn't want me adopted. She wanted me fostered for a short period of time. You have to look at her time now. She's at her most vulnerable. She's 21 years of age. She's speaking in her second language, which would be English, um, to people from the north of England, would have been strong accents in, in, in Lancashire at the time. And she's refusing to sign the adoption papers. And essentially she's exposing the trick and the trap, which was to get these women to sign at the most vulnerable. And to tell these women, look, you're not with your parents, your family would be ashamed of you, which they would. You know, a lot of us, actually, a lot of this was connected to, you know, it's easy for us to blame social workers, but actually the story is, it's it's us. It was us, our prejudice in wider society. I, I, I'm not having it that you can blame the nuns and you can blame the social workers as if all of this was happening in isolation. Those institutions wouldn't be there if wider society was not a party to it. There's a line, I, I remember from my GCSE English literature, uh, do you know in the Paycock, uh, the play by Sean O'Casey? And there's a line in it where the daughter is pregnant and she's told the mum and the dad is asking the mum what's going on because he knows there's something. And he says, is it consumption? And the mum says, so Captain Boyle says, is it consumption? And Juno says, no, it's worse than consumption. So the idea of being pregnant in early uh, 20th century Ireland was worse than potentially being dead. But that was that was the case. That would have been the case across the whole UK um, for, for a large part of the last century. The reason this is important to me is because the Irish connection is because yeah. I was once doing a poetry reading in Lancaster and telling this story about my mother being in the mother and baby home. Uh, and, you know, this is before the subject, by the way, was as known as it is now. Uh, I knew this was happening before, uh, before it broke. Mm -hmm. um, and a woman in the audience said, I was in the bed next to your mum. No way. Yeah. And she wow. said, I was in the bed next to your mum. And she said, because of meeting you today, I'm going to start searching for my son. I, she'd come over from Ireland. She was an actress. She was in Coronation Street um, for five years. And, um, and the reason I can tell you this is because I then interviewed her for a documentary I was making about finding my father. And this woman uh, talked about being in the bed next to my mum and, and actually of, of seeing me reading poetry on stage, talking the story and realizing that she was in the bed next to my mum in 1967. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, I've used, I've used my, um, notoriety as a poet and writer, and I always knew I would do this, to unravel and find my family and expose what happened to me as a child. It, this is a very long way, isn't it, of, of telling you that my mother did not sign the adoption papers. The social worker gave me to um, foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption. He's yours forever and his name is Norman. And so the, the, the foster parents who couldn't adopt me because they couldn't get my mother's signature 
we're told by the social worker, he's yours forever. We'll get her to sign the adoption papers. Don't worry. But the only stipulation is that his name is Norman. And where did that name come from then? Well, I thought then that my name was Norman. Mark was the name that the foster parents wanted to give me. Mark, Mark um, from the Bible, by the way. Um, and their last name was Greenwood. So my, I thought for the first 15 years of my life, I thought my name was Norman Mark Greenwood. And I should say to you that, that the foster parents, they, they, they told me that I was their child, that they'd chosen me, that my mother rejected me and didn't want me. Um, see, this is, the, this is the simple narrative to believe that a lot of children were told of the 1960s, your mother didn't want you. Now, this is, I find this a really interesting kind of idea, your mother didn't want you, because most parents or many parents, many mothers will have at some point thought, do I want this baby? But they won't have discussed that with their son or daughter later on in life. You were the sun, the sun shone out of your ass. You were the, you know, you were the world, you were everything. And you were, that is true as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's very easy for a parent to forget that they did ask themselves the question, do I want this child? Can I afford this child? <laughs> How am I going to work this through with the person who I have this child with? Do I want to be connected to this man or woman for the rest of my life through having this child? Okay. Parents do not tell their children that they, they probably don't even tell each other that they had these thoughts. The reason I'm saying this is, is, is connected to the hypocrisy that happens in wider society when people look at children who are in care as if, oh my God, you know, I, I would never, you know, I've heard it, I heard somebody mentioned it recently as biological exceptionalism. That is people believing that their connection with their own family and childhood is so perfect. There is no way that they could even imagine or think that their family could fall apart or that anybody in their family could be in care. When in actual fact, that's a hypocritical approach because there are many reasons why many of us could have ended up in care. And and Lem, do you feel that then fuels a prejudice towards young people who are in care? There is a a marked prejudice, an unchallenged prejudice against children in care, and I believe social workers. But let me give you an example. Um, I was on the radio the other day speaking to a brilliant guy called Eddie Nestor, who was BBC London, actually. And I said to him, okay, your daughter's comes home and she tells you that she's got a boyfriend and, um, and you, 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 you know, that's a challenge for any parents, but you, 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 you understand this route. And she, but you ask them, where is his, um, where is his parents? Where is his parents from? Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> now 
the daughter hasn't worked out what that the, the gravity of what this means yet. So the parent can ask that question knowing that the child's answer will tell them more than the child knows. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very revelatory uh, engagement. And it shows the difference between parent and child, but also how one is looking after the other. And she says, oh, he's from a children's home. His parents are, his parents, he doesn't know who his parents are. Now that feeling that Eddie Nestor, I said, and, and Eddie Nestor said, alarm bells are ringing, alarm bells are ringing. And I said, and that moment, that is where the prejudice is. It's in that direct connection between the child has no families in children's homes, there must be something wrong. I cannot place where he or she is from. I can't, I can't figure them, therefore they're a threat to my daughter. Literally the alarm bells, like the police alarm bells. Yes, they're going to I got perfectly timed. This, if, if we talk about this, talking about that in relationships, talk about it to do with work, talk about it regarding the police and how they view a child who's been in care or, or a social worker and how they view a child who's, who's not with family. Um, prejudice is not, you know, it's not just them out there. And when you consider, you know, the vast majority of young people who end up in care will have experienced significant trauma either before they came into the care system or while they're in the care system. So then to meet that trauma with an attitude of prejudice is essentially just compounding that. And, We're talking and about prejudice, which which does not, uh, which is has a financial implication. It has an emotional implication. Um, it has an aspirational I- I- implication. I mean, you know, like all serious prejudice, the effect is damning on the child. Nothing good is going to come of this kid. And Lem, I just want to take you back a little bit. You said earlier on about a parent saying, you know, my child could never end up in care. There's a sort of disassociation there from what could potentially become a reality. And I've also read an article, Lem, of yours, where you've said that social workers are hated because they see us at our worst. And that's a perspective I hadn't considered previously. Do you think that attitudes are often critical because we fear a scenario in which we may need social work support ourselves? Is it a fear of what could potentially happen? Well, it seems to me that family is all uh, quite a lot of the time is about the fear of a fear of it breaking apart. When in fact, families are always breaking apart. That you know, I've, I you know I've often said, I've often said. You know, think of the one thing that you're hurt about in your family, something that doesn't get spoken about. And <laughs> one thing, okay, just, just that one thing. And I'm not asking you to share it or to unpack it even. But let me tell you, everybody in a family has got that one thing, okay? You know, the father didn't feel like he was looked after by his father or his mother, you know, or, or okay. What's, what's the Philip Larkin line? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I, I get the Philip Larkin line, but I sometimes think that it's been used so much that it's lost its power. But imagine once that what every person in the family is going to bring up the thing that they feel betrayed about, and they're going to face it to the person who did it, who they feel did it to them. And they're going to do it in the front room all at the same time. I've said this before, but I do believe it's true that in any family, if you were to do that, somebody's going to be sectioned. The police may have to be called. You know, this may get physical. 
You know, there are sisters and brothers that haven't spoken to each other for years because of some fallout some years ago. And actually, these fallouts and these breakages, they become the making of the family, you know. You know, people decide that they will be independent of their family. I'm not going to be you. I'm going to be this. You know, they build a whole life based on on a resentment. What I'm trying to say is that, is that, is that dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. And, and, and it's part of the beautiful nature of families is they have gnarled knots and are difficult and could fall apart. I'm reading at the moment Anna Karenina, and I just feel it bears kind of to, to touch on the first line. All happy families are like, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Forgive me if that's a slight paraphrase, but it applies. It applies so universally. Absolutely. And and here we have social workers and children in care, and they are living, walking proof that things fall apart. They are living, walking proof of the truth of the nature of families, that things can fall apart. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. And can be fixed. And can be fixed because you don't hear about the stories where the social workers make great things happen. Because of the hypocrisy in our society, um, those stories are are quietened as well. In fact, your entire work has got to be quietened. And not only that, but children in care grow into adults and they're not supposed to talk about their past because it ruins the dinner party. Because it's like, you know, it it, it offers the the, the only language people have to communicate with social workers and, and children in care is this, um, uh, this hypocritic and yet, uh, the stunted language of pity, okay, and, and 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 pity is one of those things that people have got when they haven't got words and they they need to separate themselves from the story. The fact is, dysfunction is in all functioning families. Dysfunction is part of the beauty of functioning families. Social workers and children in care are proof of that dysfunction, and the hypocrisy of society means that they would rather damn a social worker for mending things, damn a child in care for being in care, than to admit that what's happening out there is quite possibly happening in their own family as well. And the difficulty being, you know, social work being so under-resourced, resources go where they need to go, critical need. And the early intervention and prevention work and working with families before problems escalate into crises that doesn't get get to happen. And that is because it's a profession which doesn't have the resources it needs to fix things, like you said, Liam, as opposed to dealing with solely with crisis situations. And it doesn't have, it doesn't have the resources it needs because uh, it's not a vote winner. And, and if it was a vote winner, then we would start to get, um, we get more resources. This is what I think is my, one of my main, uh, processes or uh, if I was an activist in any way, and I, by the way, I believe that social workers are the activists on the front line. <laughs> why, why they shouldn't be seen as that, I don't know. They are on the front line and they are activists. Um, but but, but I, what I want to do is to change people's opinion as to how important the value of a child in care is uh, and, and subsequently 
the social worker because they're working with them. Now, Lem, if we come back to your story and your experience. So when you were taken in by the, the foster family, the Greenwoods, you were a black child placed with a white foster family. Yes. So I've read your memoir. It's called My Name Is Why. I'll, I would encourage listeners to read it. It's a fantastic book. Thank you. Thanks. When I read that, there's a real clear sense of otherness um, that you felt um, as a result of racism growing up. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I also sensed a real sense of alienation um, from your own background, your own heritage. You know, in one of the social work records that Pepper, the book, this is from 1988, um, uh, and that was when you were moved to the Woodfields Children's Home. Um, it explains that, well, it ex- the record explains that you didn't want to be placed with an ethnic minoritized foster family. The book, it was, sorry, the, the record was from 1988, uses the word coloured. Now, was any connection made to your birth parents' culture? Was there any effort to connect you to that culture? Gosh, it's embarrassing to think that I actually did say that uh, to a social worker, um, you know, given that I love all of the complexities of my identity now, the Ethiopian part of me, the British part of me, the northerner, you know, etc. Yeah, I mean, I was just taught, I mean, I didn't, I didn't meet a black person until I was nine or so. I didn't know a person of colour until I was uh, in my teenage years. So my general view of people of colour was that they were, they were alien to me. Um, They had good rhythm. They, um, I mean, I don't know, just, just basically negative a negative image of people of colour. And I I think I was quite frightened of, I was quite frightened of them because, because that's what I picked up from everybody else who was around me. So I was like, it's all I'd ever known, you know, is that, you know, that that there's something not right about them. Um, And then, and then I was like, oh, but that can't be true because I'm, I'm one of them. So that, that was a sort of wake-up call as I became a teenager. There's an example in the book. You talk about having your hair brushed um, with a fine-tooth comb, and oh, it was agony. God, yeah. Then you go on to say that you first received an Afro comb when you met Errol Brown from Hot Chocolate. Is that a true <laughs> story? Is that a true story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. There's nothing in that book yeah. that's not true. Sure. You know, because... And, and um, yeah, and he had... Uh, yeah, he had a child at Winstanley Hospital, and my mum was a nurse. My foster mum was a nurse. So yeah, that's that's what I went to their house and I got this this Afro comb. But now I look back, I can think, oh, he will have really wanted to make sure that I get an Afro comb. It wasn't it would have been symbolic to him of actually, my gosh, how can a black baby not know what an Afro comb is? I mean, I was, I don't know what how old I was, nine or so or eight or so. So it's like how can this child never have had an Afro comb? I mean, what what would a parent not know? What other things must must they not know if they don't know about an Afro comb? And, and worse still, I mean, I still see this to this day, I'm afraid. I see a little um, lovely child of colour with um, a foster or adoptive parent and the hair is a mess. Uh-huh. And I think, oh my God, you! If you start to look look at the hair of black people, just start to notice it. Okay, 
like just start to just take a look at it. Uh, mine is a mess at the moment, an absolute mess. You wouldn't know that unless you knew, you know, and you unless you were either of colour or you you knew about afros. But I haven't combed my hair. It's an absolute mess. Very easy. It would be very easy for a white person to say, no, Lem, it's lovely. No, you just don't, you know. just don't know. It is such a visual representation, though, if you think of a little one who is being brought up in a in a in an environment which isn't culturally sensitive or culturally appropriate. The hair oh is such God. a it's a giveaway. Oh the, look, watch the television series on oh Kaepernick, the basketball player, Kaepernick, the one who took the yes, knee. Yes, Colin, yes. He he was adopted. Yes. And 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 I tell you this, Colin Kaepernick, and you know, I tell you this. His mum goes into a black hairdresser and says, "How can I, how can I do this? Like, what what needs to be done?" And basically, it's that simple. Yes. You know, it's like I I believe that anybody can adopt or foster anybody. Like, I know too many incredible, actually mainly women, but but who were adopted by white families and who are, so, you know, their mum and dad, Jackie Kay is the greatest example, you know. If you want to know what it feels like being an outsider inside a family, just look at any family. It's full of people who feel like outsiders, like they were not treated as well by the parents for this reason or that reason or what have you, you know. So I, I, I'm okay with feeling like an outsider, but uh, inside a family, and I, family is complicated. That's the nature of it. This is why adopted people can sometimes be like, "I knew I was, I knew there was something wrong." Well, go figure. You know, welcome to family. You know, you, it, it, it's not just about the things that go wrong. It's about how you actually get through those things that have gone wrong. You know, because that's it happens to all families. Um, Lem, I'm keen to talk about your time with the Greenwoods. It was a very religious upbringing, wasn't it? Yes. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was just gonna just wanted to jump in there because you know nothing is black and white, is it? So my explanations may be long, and I apologise. But I should say that don't not at all. They didn't want to adopt me. They prayed to God, and God advised them to adopt me. They didn't take me away when I was taken away. The devil was taking me away. So yes, is my answer to your question. Religion was central to to them and to their relationship with me. But never discussed with the social worker? Even though it was at the heart of the family, it was something which wasn't ever discussed with the social worker. Is that right? What I know is this, actually. My birth mother wanted me to have um, Christian foster parents. Um, Ethiopia is an incredibly religious uh, um, country, and um, and the religion is mainly it's fifty percent actually fifty percent Muslim, fifty percent Ethiopian Orthodox, which is the which is the um, religion that my mum was part of, as well as Seventh Day Adventist as well, actually. Shoot. Yeah, I was kind of curious, but I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but it's something which really interests me. I was aware of Ethiopian Orthodox as the church, but your mum, the Seventh-day Adventist, that's more like a Protestant denomination. That's, that's is that absolutely right? true. Yeah. I mean, you know, Africa was like open season for church and state. Um, Ethiopia was always independent, but 
because of the expansion by the Emperor Haile Selassie at the time, he was inviting educational institutions to come to Ethiopia to set up and connect around the world. Um, most educational institutions, for example, in England, are run as part of churches, C of E, Catholic schools, etc. Uh, and so churches were established in Ethiopia as schools, church schools, and Seventh-day Adventist was actually quite a progressive uh, Protestant uh, church school system, which is there to this day. So, yeah, so my mum went to a very good school, a boarding school, um, which was run by the Seventh-day Adventist station just outside of Ethiopia. And her father will have paid really high fees for for her to be there. And and the Greenwoods were Baptists? Yeah, absolutely. The Greenwoods were Baptists. Um, A kind of, uh, what's that guy from Scotland? Calvinist. Very Calvinist. Very Calvinist. A lot, a lot of combination, not an awful lot of grace. Ah, was absolutely. The, the sense I was getting. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, spiritual spiritual abuse is a term which is coming more into the into the, the the public discussion. I don't know if it was something which would ever have been discussed back in the eighties. But what I'm keen to know is, you know, you were told over and over again as a youngster that what was perceived as bad behaviour, um, that was that was because the devil was in you. Now, what what impact does that have on the psyche of of a child? Well, I mean, if you consider that the devil working inside of me was connected to the fact that the foster parents put me into children's homes at 12 years of age and said they'd never contact me again. And I lost everybody, my brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and granddads and great granddad, grandma and cousins and second cousins and the church and my school and my town and every street that I'd ever known and every, every, every park that I'd ever known, every, I lost everything from 12 and they said they'd never visit me and never did. And nobody ever contacted me ever, ever again. I still, you know, I list the names because it, because I've had to grow into adulthood to realise the gravity of what it is that they did to me by virtue of the fact that I did not have the tendrils which people, which feed into the psyche of every individual who's brought up inside a family. And that's the painful ones as well as the warming ones. I lost all of that. I was then held from 12 years of age until I was 18 in four different children's homes. Uh, um, The final one being an assessment centre, which was a virtual prison for children, which meant that I'd not stayed anywhere for longer than a year and a half. And that the children left, came and left any of those institutions within six months or so. Staff changed every four hours. So by the time I was 18 and I was leaving care, I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year. And by knew me, I mean, they'd eaten food. I'd eaten food in their house. Simple. That's my simple criteria, okay? You could say you knew me if I've eaten food in your house more than once or twice. I'm saying to you that I left care at 18 years of age and I wasn't, nobody was in touch with me who'd known me for longer than a year. 
Nobody from under 12 years of age, nobody from the times of the children's homes. And, and I was the only person who could collate the gravity of that. Now, if you, if you lock that into the primary caregivers, my foster parents who said that they would be my parents forever, putting me into care at 12 years of age, directly connected to the fact that the devil was working with inside me, then you will have some idea of how big, what a big effect that had on me. And the worst thing they did was they sat me down one day and my foster mum said to me, you don't love us, do you? And she, and I said, yeah, of course I do. And then they said, come back to us the next day, read the Bible, pray and, and, and tell us, and so I came back the next day and I said, I mustn't love you because, and in my head it was because you're asking me if I loved you, which means I mustn't love you. But, and this is what I think you wanted me to get to, I will ask God for forgiveness because they were Baptists and asking God for forgiveness was a big deal. And my mum said, because you don't love us, you don't want to be with us. And the next day, my social worker was waiting for me in the car to take me away from them. They'd already called him. So if you want to know what spiritual abuse is, it's in that moment. It is. It is. And it's just, it's horrific. And then when you, when you, when you were in the children's homes, the, the sense I got was that the trauma you'd experienced as a child, it was compounded at each stage and the severity and the, maybe the austerity of the, the care in inverted commas you were receiving um, got worse and worse. It did, but it got worse and worse as my realisation became clearer and clearer, which was, which was a recipe for a kind of madness, really, because I realised that the entire system was based on, um, on discipline. And the discipline was, if you're good, good things will happen, which they didn't. <laughs> uh, and if you're bad, bad things will happen, which they did. In other words, the system knew how to punish me. It knew the rules and the laws and regulations that I had to stand by that I would only by nature break. Um, and so I noticed that the system understood itself best when it was being pun punishing me. And I'll tell you why I knew this. It couldn't even give me a hug. What did that lack? You, t you talk about this. You talk about uh, the lack of touch. I think you talk about going into um, Woodfields. Uh, it was the end of, of warm hugs. Uh, the end of, I think it was the, it was the start of empty yeah, Christmases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was the, the line. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There's also yeah. the line you say, you would ask the staff, you know, why do you do this job? And they'd say, because I love children. And you said, sorry, and this, this breaks my heart. You said, no one ever said, because I love you. You know. Yeah, it's um, true. So how. It's about the detail, you see, that I was the only person who could remember what had happened to me throughout this, my time in care. Everybody else was dealing with the problem. They were trying to pass it over. This is a problem with PAs. Um, the, the, the PAs that people are given once they leave the care. It's just another person who's actually dealing with a problem. Right? Oh, anyway, the, 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 the thing is, is that, um, is, that, um, is that nobody saw us as kids in care as kind of solutions, as like actually the opportunity for greatness. 
um, because, you know, because we have no dysfunctional family around us. We have actually got a system which has got everything. It's got education, it's got psychotherapy, it's got, you know, da, 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 da. So it's like, why is nobody seeing having a vulnerable child on their own as an opportunity for greatness, for the local council to go, okay, this is what the one place where we can actually show like where, where we're most needed is in a child who is out of um, who is out of parental responsibility and who needs care. Um, and, 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 and all I saw were like people kind of who didn't know what they were doing and who were always blaming people up there and who were passing on responsibility back to the child even. What is it that you want? You know, well, I don't know what I want. I'm in care. I want you to suggest what I want. I want you to make mistakes and then find the right way. No parent knows that when they punish their child, they're choosing the right form of punishment. They just got to go yes. with it. Yes. <laughs> you know, and this is the thing that I hate about what happens to social workers is that you're not allowed to make mistakes. And yet mistakes are actually a part of what make families work through to the right solution. Oh, um, then when you were in care, you began writing and I'm keen to kind of t- discuss, you know, the extent to which yeah. that was therapeutic. Um, now there was, a, there was, you discussed, I think uh, it was the, the rhetoric and the, and the poetry of the, of the Bible, actually, when you were in your, in your foster care that awakened you to the concept of poetry. What, well, what stage did you begin writing in, in earnest? Do you remember? Well, look, look, I'm not going to say that it's because, because I studied the Bible as a child that I became a poet. And there is Sorry, no I wasn't suggesting it was. I was. No, 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 no. It has been said. And I think I've said it as well. So I, I just, I just want to, because it's, a, it, I think I have said it because it's a believable narrative, you know, it's like, but I do think that like, you know, why does that child become that rugby player? You know, it's like, it's all oh, because I had sports lessons. Yeah, but your bones were made in a certain way. Your head was built in a certain way that when you grabbed the ball and you did, you ran down the wing, you felt like you belonged on the earth. You know, so th- this is why, this is why parents say to their children, okay, you want to do piano lessons? Let's have piano lessons if we can afford them. You want to play rugby? Right. We'll get you to the rugby on a Saturday morning, you know, because they're letting their child try to find what it is that they that makes them feel like they belong in the world okay this is why we should give children in care like all opportunities to try lots of different things and 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 if if a child says do you know what when i'm fixing cars i the whole everything disappears outside of the world it's like right how can we get that child to be able to try as many things so they can find the talent that they think, oh God, yeah, fixing cars, running down the wing with a ball in my hand, you know, um, a, a young girl, you know, that hits a tennis racket and feels a sense of place when she's on her own. It's what makes you, you. I made an episode recently with a wonderful colleague called Becca Pierre and she she grew up in, in the care system or spent a number of years in the care system as a teenager. And I, she's a musician and I was asking her about did she have access to her instruments? And she did uh, for the most part. But she used a really lovely line, really poetic line. She said, had I not had that access, it would have felt like an amputation of the spirit. Now, that might oh, seem, it might seem like a, a trivial thing to someone looking on. No, but, that gives me yeah, goosebumps. Yeah. It, it, you, the, the things that you, cr- that, the way you express yourself is what makes you, you, you're going to take that, Lem? You're going to, 
You gonna borrow that? I just love it. I mean, amputation of the spirit. No, it takes me straight to um, actually Philip Pullman's um, uh, Northern Lights trilogy, yes. where the children have a what's called a daemon. Yes, yes. Uh, and it's an animal, you know, that they have with them. And, and Lyra Balakwa, who was a foster child herself, right at the heart of Philip Pullman's yes. books. Um, uh, Lyra has her own daemon. And and when those daemons are separated from the young person, they, they're, they're lost and they die, in fact. So, so it just struck me that what she said about it being you know, if she'd not had instruments or found her talents, it would have been like the amputation of the spirit is exactly how I feel about having been fortunate enough to have found my talent, something that I believe in. doesn't matter that whether I make a career out of it, by the way, that's another matter, but finding your talent is something that all of us, you know, can get a lot out of regardless of whether we make a career out of it. I think sometimes we put this pressure on creatives that if you're not making a career out of it, you've somehow failed, which is nonsense. You know, oh my God. Yeah, it really is nonsense. It devalues it. Yeah, it does. Like, I mean, I play music and the guys I know that don't play in bands anymore because they got a job. And it's like, it's like music is a thing that I value over well, apart from family, over everything. Why would I stop doing it? Because I, got, yeah. I, I really love my job. But why would I stop playing music? Because I got a job, you know. Um, oh, my God. And it's, it's the monetization like, of everything, uh, Lem. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And actually, this is one of the things, this brings me to something very different, but I want to share it with you. It is, um, oh, it's something that happens to young people who are in care, which is the opposite of infantilization. So infantilization is where you treat an adult adult like they're a child. You infantilize them. Okay. And it's interesting that there's no word to describe where you make a child, you 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 transpose onto the child as if they're an adult. Oh no, it, it's the term is adultification. Lemon, it's used quite is, a lot. So is that yeah. a, is that a term now? Yeah, and particularly in relation to um, um, black and minoritized children, you know, for example, young boys will be seen as men before oh, they're men, and that was yeah. my life. Yeah, that was my life. Yeah. Um. Oh my gosh, and that goes very deep. Actually, once you think about young males, uh, and you think about uh, adolescents you know, and adultification and the police and, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So I'm glad to have heard that there is a term called adultification because I think we should start to, I can see how it would be used for black males in particular, black young males, but actually I think it's very applicable to young people in care. We, 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 we treat them as if they are adults in fact, it's almost like we can't wait to treat them as if they're adults. Yeah. And, and, and often that's more connected to the administrative role of being an adult you, than it has yeah. to being a child. You absolve yourself of the parental responsibility and, the, and, and essentially the guilt. Uh, yeah, with and us. the possibility that you might be wrong. Yes. And yes. the fact that, and that you might be responsible yes. for being wrong. Yes. There's been a number of literary kind of contributions here, but I came across this really great uh, line from Yeats re recently. Now, it's not from a poem. It's, a, it's a, about a literary critique. You might mm. know this. Um, so the quote is, we make out of the quarrel with ourselves. Sorry, start again. We make out of the quarrel with others rhetoric, but out of the quarrel with ourselves poetry. Oh, it's lovely. Now, in terms, of, in terms of the trauma you'd experienced as a young person, to what extent was that trauma fueling the poetry you were making or um, to what extent was your poetry an attempt to actually escape that trauma? 
That's a really good, uh, the best way I can describe this is that I'm in a storm on a mountainside and it's just got so raging that I, I, I you know, it's a, it, it's a life and death situation. I feel like I'm going to be blown off the side of the uh, ridge, ridge of this mountainside that I found myself on. Uh, and that in writing, um, I get this kind of orb of uh, light and protection around me. And it is not relative to the storm in any way. It is something way bigger than me. Um, uh, it's not even about the, the actual words that I'm writing. There's something about it which protects me. Um, and that's basically what happens when I write. My, 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 my present problem and one that I've had probably all my life is that I never learned how to look after what I value most because I've been, my, my primary life is about being value less. And um, I sometimes, I look at people who, who value themselves um, and I think it's, you should never know how important that is because you could only know how important it is if you didn't have it. And, and, and so I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. What I'm trying to say is that I don't think that I look after my talent as well as I should. And um, I've used it to enable me to understand what happened in my childhood. And I've used it to actually finance the search for my family and proving what happened to me and taking the government to court for what they did to me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but my talent or the creativity is way bigger than my story, my story, you know, and I, I think, wow, what, what writer could I have been if this stuff had not have happened to me and I hadn't spent half of my life trying to explain myself, but you know, there's a lot of life to go. So yes, there is. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I think, I think one of the things that, you know, it'd be great for both, young people in care, but also for us, uh, for social workers, is how do we, how do we look after ourselves? I think one of the things that is missing in a lot of the lobbying and stuff that goes on by young people in care in their children's councils that are around the country and the articulate ones that we wheel out to talk about their stories and you know, I've been one of those to a certain degree and I'm one of those to a certain degree, but I'm old now um, relative to, to a certain understanding of what a care lever is. But what doesn't get talked about, which I think is probably the most important thing, is well-being, well-being in, in, the, in the care lever because we've 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 had many years 
of saying the moment you leave care, you go into denial about your experience. So I'm not saying that you have to speak your experience to everybody that you meet. You don't. But how do you feel at ease with your past rather than feel that you have to lock it away inside of yourself as if it's kryptonite? Yes, yes. You know, I'm just thinking that in terms of support for care leavers, you're associated with the University of Huddersfield as well as the University of Manchester. And there's the LAM CSA PhD scholarship for care leavers. So just as one example, what has that meant to you to enable care leavers to be supported via that initiative? Ah, oh, man, you know, there's various uh, things that I've done or I'm about that um, I'm just very proud of. One of them is, yeah, the, the PhD scholarship at the University of Huddersfield that started, I think, in 2013, 2014. And that's that's an initiative from the University of Huddersfield, which is it's a big deal because more universities now are giving scholarships for care leavers. And Huddersfield can definitely say that it was first. Um, University of Manchester has got an incredibly supportive um, uh, support network, I should say, for um, for care leavers. And there are universities up and down the country now that are um, sort of that are supporting of care leavers in ways that they just were not before. Yeah. yeah. Part of this is because our government is actually uh, providing resources for people outside of the social services to serve uh, young people in care and care leavers. I've got to say, I think there's some not good practice going on there. And I think social workers will be the first to see organisations purporting to work with care leavers and thinking, yeah, I'm not sure that that's as solid as it says it is. Yes, it's something we've talked about a lot in the podcast is co-production, which is the term which is used constantly. But what does meaningful co-production mean as opposed to just box ticking and involving young people, care leavers, in meaningful discussions to shape services uh, and to support them as well? Because a lot of organisations have got money to work with care leavers and they are just doing what they do with everybody else, but saying, putting, looking at care leavers. That, That doesn't work, you know, and I can see those I can see them a mile away and I I can't imagine what it's like as a social worker, having people telling you about what care leavers need when you've been dealing with them, you know. Um, Just uh, jumping back over the Pennines, so we're back in Manchester. You are the Chancellor of the University of Manchester and, you know, you've talked... Uh, you've talked about inspiring, you know, having a role to advocate and inspire. So if your role as the Chancellor is one there to inspire your students, based on everything you've learned over the years from your own experience, um, how are you inspiring social work students? I think uh, Manchester has, it's an MA degree course, isn't that right? For social it work? has got an yeah. MA degree course in social work. And um, all I can tell you is that I would do a lot more forum with them if they asked me. Um, um um, um, but at the same time, you know, they've got a lot of work to do, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think I've done one event for them. Listen up the offers out there. So hopefully. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it, it, yeah. I mean, if they heard me say this, they would, they would probably get on it, but it's a very good course and they do good work. Um, uh, I, my role, I think, a lot of the time is um, a slight agitator, um, non-linear. Yes. Uh, 
and I, I think uh, I, I think I've I've enjoyed that role as a creative. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> a, I think it's been important, and I have actually seen you know social services change and grow and and become you know become so I don't know articulate basically. Did you um, feel any imposter syndrome when you took on that role? I feel imposter syndrome all the time. All the time. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, I feel less, I, you know, I've got six months. No, not even six months. April, May, June, July. Gosh, I've got four months left and that'll be the end of my seven-year tenure as Chancellor at the University of Manchester. Um, I can see what I've done that's good. I can also see that you can't always be... Yeah, Yeah, you can only do so much. Um, but I can't be defined by my limitations. Um, no, my, be defined my, by your potential, not your yeah, limitations. Yeah, so. I mean, my role is is um, is ceremonial as the university. Rather Imagine than, we defined care leavers by their potential, not what they've been Oh through. my God, you know. that's, I mean... You define someone by their potential, they're de- that is limitless. And well, it's inspiring. Yeah, it is, it is. And what's wonderful about it is it's your call. It is your call day to day, you know, and actually what, what I think people are starting to realize as social workers as well is that actually the idea of having high aspirations for the people I work with, social workers or kids in care, by the way, the idea of having high aspirations makes my work better. Mm-hmm. It is actually the, 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 it is the gift that keeps on giving to just name a cliche, but actually, and I don't mean happy, clappy, Hey, all kids no. are good. You know, all, all adults, all social workers are great. You know, it's like, it's like, no, 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 no. It's like aspirations are free. Okay. Not a false kind of, you know, I remember somebody saying to me once I said about superheroes and kids in care being, you know, actually, if you want to see prejudice, against kids in care and social workers, but we'll say kids in care for now. Just imagine that most uh, hero narrative stories in Marvel and Mm -hmm. uh, Christmas and Oliver Twist and are of people who've been in care. Okay. Superman was... Harry Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Spider-Man. Superman was a foster child. Carrie um, from Carrie's War... The super, um, I mean, Elizabeth Salander, the girl with the dragon tattoo, Matilda. I mean, there's just billions. Jane Eyre, go back to the Greek myths, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The prejudice is because people never associate the closest examples to those people as being kids in care, but they are the closest living examples, and. What's irritating is that people will say, I've heard it said, oh, well, they're not all, you know, come on. You're not saying that they're all good. Two things to say about that is that most children who steal from Tesco's were not brought up in care. There are children, okay? (laughs) That's most people who steal from shops. But when a child in care steals from a shop, all kinds of things have to happen. And one of those is the criminalization of a child in care. That's how they start to form relationships with the police, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, sorry, I was saying that relative to people who say that not all people are good just because you're 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 you know you're 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 showing you're 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 comparing them to superheroes. Harry Potter wasn't good all the time, uh, and neither was Superman. Superman essentially is constantly looking for fires to put out so that so that he can be his best self. <laughs> and, what, and what does Superman find most difficult? Relationships. Essentially, Superman lies about his past to everybody else. He's a liar. Okay, Harry Potter has a thing on his forehead, talks inappropriately to adults as if he's an adult himself, which he's not. Okay, so so I'm saying that all of these great characters that you use to tell your children about being right and wrong and helping save people, etc. They've all got flaws that you forego because of their brilliance, because you yes. say to yourself, this is a good person. For fuck's sake, you know, with kids in care who have extraordinary situations happen to them, who have to deal with those in extraordinary ways. And what do we do? We judge them down. We lower the aspirations so much so that we don't even see it ourselves. Jesus had two dads. <laughs> he he did. And, he and did. not only that, but his own mum told her husband that he was an immaculate conception. Okay, now take a social worker into that situation. <laughs> Go into situation. It's a tricky one. Now I'm not I'm not against anybody who's a Christian, you know. I'm just saying that actually, it's amazing what we don't see. I mean, to, to, just to, to to broaden out the example, Jesus was an asylum seeker. He was a refugee. You know, we could go down a rabbit hole. We could talk about this all day. Um, but that's one one I I'm always keen to stress, particularly now the of Ukrainian course, crisis. Yeah. But all all the discussions going on around why 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 does a country in Europe get preferential oh. treatment to countries in Africa yeah. and the Middle East? Yeah, yeah. Nobody but our blind spots, our blind spots are what we are revealing by being social workers or being kids in care. You know, we're revealing societal blind spots, right? We're, this is what I mean by social workers are on the front line because you're actually showing people what the nature of family is actually all about. And a lot of the time people don't want to know what the nature of family is because it's ugly at times. Mm. And in our own families, it's ugly. We spend our life trying not to admit to that, you know? So I I think that we, people who've been in care, but social workers as well, and people who see, you know, it's all about being, we are unlocking something very special that makes our society a a better place to be a part of. And, And the denial that happened in the 1960s and that we're paying for to t- today cannot happen again. Lem, you've been incredibly generous with your time and I've had a wonderful, oh, a wonderful conversation. Look, I had a script which has, we've touched on about a third of it. It's been brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for being, um, going with it. I know I've talked, I've really enjoyed the discussion. I, I think 
we're in a very exciting place in social work at the moment. I couldn't be a social worker. I don't have the um, skills, uh, emotional skills um, and practical skills. Um, you see things that nobody else sees. You equate uh, familial behaviour uh, with patterns that actually most of us don't see. You do. Um, it's the greatest responsibility uh, of any person working uh, in society, I believe. And, um, you know, I think you should all have pay rises. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> thank you, Liam. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. <laughs>